as I probably say at least every other week, if not every week, the human mind is a deeply social mind wired to connect. Uh, human beings get a survival advantage by connecting. And if you've ever recently experienced rejection, abandonment, uh, feeling of being disconnected with the love, you'll, it'll be fresh in your mind just how painful that experience is. Psychologist Matthew Lieberman uh, did a test where he programmed a game where people played remotely against each other to systematically, one by one, isolate certain players away from the action so they couldn't be involved. And they found that the same area of the brain that creates physical pain, highlights physical pain for our awareness, is also responsible for highlighting emotional pain. Uh, that's the right anterior cingulate. And that's why when you've experienced a disappointing relational event, somebody criticizes you, a friend uh, doesn't call you back, a breakup, uh, there's a great deal of difficulty not thinking about it. Your mind will be prone to bring your awareness back again and again and again, like it does when we're in physical pain. Uh, because just as physical pain is a message that we're vulnerable and it, awareness is set up so that we become perennially aware of our vulnerability so that we'll take uh, actions to instill our security or ensure our security when we're disconnected with people that are important to us, um, certainly in the bulk of human history, being isolated or disconnected would be a huge survival disadvantage. And it would be in our interest to constantly alert us to the negative feelings of sadness or grief or anger that arose as a result of a lack of secure connections that would protect us. In fact, the great anxiety of adult life is called neurotic anxiety. In childhood, we have separation anxiety, which is the, the fear of being disconnected from our caretaker, which provides us with the food and nourishment and security that we need to survive. But as adults, we have a variation, which is the concern that something about us, our personality, some impulse, will drive other people away when they see it. Other people won't like my sadness. Other people won't like my anger, my confusion, my doubt. And um, so this is a persistent concern, staying well-connected. We will do anything. Human beings are wired to do anything to stay connected because that's, again, how we ensure our survival. So in early life, the relationships we have are assigned to us. None of us got to choose our parents, choose our siblings, choose our teachers. They're just there, and we have to make do. And so in childhood, to survive, we have to learn to adapt. We have to learn to present people with that which they want to see so that they will still love us, still pay attention to us, still be emotionally tolerant. In essence, our childhoods 
are spent, certainly to connect with uh, caretakers, were being trained to be inauthentic, to not present the fullness of our felt emotional lives, but we're actually, shall we say, programmed, or our default settings as human beings is to do whatever it takes to get mom or dad or teacher or whoever to pay attention to us, to meet our needs, to still provide us with food. And then we get tossed into these awful institutions called schools <laughs> with schoolyards where there are bullies and mean girls and uh, all kinds of scary kids. And as the great social psychologist Albert Bandura noted, the brain is even has a process called implicit learning. We observe unconsciously the actions that other people do that get rewards. How do other be people behave and get, and get approval? And we mimic it. We're literally natural mimickers. So when I went to school and I saw that the boys that were popular were the ones that were essentially cool, didn't ex display a lot of emotion, certainly didn't ex display uh, anything that qualified as kindness, <laughs> a feeling of being compelled to do what it, take, it took to stay connected with, you know, to not be punished, ostracized, rejected by uh, the group. And I, I would pretend to like all kinds of horrible, horrible 70s music. And the records I really liked or uh, that didn't fit, I had to hide behind the ones, you know, I had to get the the Led Zeppelin and show that, but I had to hide the the Roxy music. So uh, none of you have any clue who that is. Um, the world does not reward authenticity; it rewards compliance. And very often, those ingrained behaviors will not in any way be true to how you feel. And so, eventually, through implicit implicit mimicking and simply self-abandonment and editing, we develop a set of immediate, automatic, compliant behaviors. Somebody asks how I'm doing, and the immediate response, fine, what's going on with you? <laughs> it's okay, nothing going on. Automatically abandoning ourselves to fit in, to the point where we even cannot be aware that there's this whole set of emotions playing out in the body beneath the social interactions where we're having actual feelings that don't fit what we're saying. We're saying, oh, everything's fine, it's all good, but in fact there's frustration or sadness or disappointment or grief or confusion or self-doubt. This belief that we have to it's all important to win approval and get people to like us. Well, it makes sense in childhood. It may even make sense in high school. If we import this into our adult life, it becomes what's called a maladaptive behavior. It's adaptive in childhood because we have to put up with the people we're assigned. We can't 
with our parents say, you know, you're really transgressing some of my most cherished boundaries, and we're going to have to take a break, and I'm going to need to move into a uh, bed and breakfast for a while as you work through the issues of engulfment, but you're, uh, we don't do that. It can turn into a chronic people-pleasing, smiling with this yoga greeting at the door. <laughs> Hi! How are you? It's so lovely to see you. The exact same expression each and every time. Nobody authentically has the same emotion day in and day out. Especially if it's their job or, you know, they're teaching somebody like me how to do yoga. It's just not... It's just not true. You don't feel that excited to see me. I wouldn't. <laughs> it's don't look over there at the sadness behind the, or the anger, or the disappointment. It's look over here at the smile I have pasted across my face and the fake enthusiasm, or the, uh, and sometimes the most important Interactions we have in our life, we can be trained to be the most inauthentic job, interviews, trying to get into colleges, going out on dates. That's a loaded one. Sally goes out on a date with Bill. And Sally tells herself, oh, I've got to be, even though I'm, I'm having a hard time at work and I'm really frustrated with my roommate, I've got to put on this enthusiasm and seem really interested and really happy to be out in the state. Well, if Bill calls her back for a second or a third date, does she really know if it's because he was interested in her or was it simply a result of her performance? She won't be able to relax in future dates. She'll, in fact, have started the process of abandoning her true feelings or whatever she's experiencing spontaneously, she'll have started that slippery slope to um, win approval. And suppose even at a workplace, we always have a certain demeanor we put on, then we can never be sure if we are doing well and uh, achieving things or finding fulfillment due to a true representation, or whether we have to spend our entire lives just showing a very few limited set of emotions. And all of that requires energy, it creates what uh, Dan Wegner called cognitive overload. If right now I was secretly experiencing fear of talking to you, but I wanted to seem confident, I would have to look at your faces to see, oh, can you tell that I'm frightened? I'm actually right now not frightened. But if I was, and I was trying to present as confident in what I was talking about, then I would have to, one, worry about how do I have to look to seem confident? How can I keep that fear from showing? Can you see the fear that I'm feeling? And all of that creates an overload which will make me seem stilted and inauthentic and the words and I say and the visual expressions and my tone of voice, they won't align because I'm, my emotions are far too fast. They take a tenth of a second to flash across the face. A thought, even a repressive and authentic thought, takes about a half a second. 
So that little worry will always flash through. Compliance causes resentment. When people have uh, anxious attachment and they can't present their real needs on dates or in relationships and the other person doesn't know what they need, then they, in their compliance and their people-pleasing, they build up an internal list of grievances which they never express. And then they just wait until the final straw happens and they bail on the friendship or the relationship. If we cannot feel confident and train ourselves to be confident in expressing the full entire range of human emotions, and if we tell ourselves, well, I don't want the world to see my anger and my, my confusion, then we're no longer establishing real deep connections because authentic connections are not just verbal. They're when we express what we're feeling beneath the verbal stream of words in the left hemisphere and we show through the face, through our pauses, through our tone of voice, through even sometimes acknowledging in language what is being felt. It requires a big change, but I think that the shift to authenticity, while it's the greatest risk that we take as adults, because it entails the possibility of rejection if we're going to be authentic, if we're going to tell people how we are feeling, if we're going to tell roommates when something they do is disturbing, if we're going to express our frustration with a family member, if we're going to talk about something that causes anger. And yet, it's the most rewarding journey, because until we do it, we'll never know for sure which relate, we'll in fact doubt, we won't feel confident in any of our relationships. People-pleasing is so stressful, it requires so much monitoring and so much harboring of resentments and so much not sharing. And whereas authenticity requires effort too in disclosing and going into those awkward conversations that could at times entail some discomfort, it's the only way through. The Buddha said a couple of things that I think are really helpful. He said, um, it has been the case, this is in the Dhammapada, it's been the case from ancient, ancient times that people will criticize others who are silent, will criticize people who speak a great deal, and will criticize those who speak just the right amount. No one has ever received constant praise. And yet, at the same time, the Buddha says we do need true friends if we are to have a spiritual path. It's only by having a safe container externally where we can express those awkward feelings that we can also begin to tolerate them internally, and it's only through expressing that we can process our sadness. As social beings, we are meant to process difficult feelings by not only knowing them in the body, but expressing them to others. The Buddha says, a true friend does what is hard to do, this is in the Mita Sutta, forgives our ill-spoken words, tells you their secrets, listens to yours, and when misfortune strikes, they don't abandon. So what the Buddha is saying is that 
True friendship, which is necessary, is one based on tolerance and based on authenticity. How do we override our default wiring and move from seeking to appease the people that happen to be there in our jobs, in our apartments, in our families? And how do we move to that great transition in life where we insist that true relationships and connections are based on a full disclosure of how we feel as our feelings arise without concealment or editing or habitual self-abandonment. A couple of things. The first, authenticity requires pausing in conversation. The automatic response that is socially ingrained is almost never authentic. I grew up in a family with a drunk father where it wasn't safe to say uh, my true feelings when he would apologize for something absolutely crappy he did while he was drunk. So I was trained to say, it's okay, don't worry about it. And as an adult, when people would apologize for something that was messed up, I would find myself automatically saying, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's nothing. Beneath that automatic ingrained what's coming out of my mouth in the body was it's not okay. The feeling was, no, that wasn't okay. And that apology doesn't mean anything while I'm simply mouthing an inauthentic, compliant, it's okay. So, for me, the, the journey begins with pausing, being okay with saying, I'll get back to you when somebody asks us something, or when somebody apologizing, taking time, checking into the body, seeing how it feels, and saying what we experience, which is, okay, I'm glad you're apologizing. I still feel kind of wounded by that. I still feel a tightness in my chest. I still feel uh, upset. But I'm glad that you're apologizing. That means a lot to me. And I want you to know how I feel. I don't feel good about it. That not only is training us to deeply connect in a real way with others, but it's actually solidifying that relationship. Because when I say that, and, other, and the other person knows that I'm being truthful, and they will feel that connection. If I go, it's okay, don't worry about it, they will never really know, because they'll hear or they'll see a glimpse in my facial expression or my tone of voice where the, the mismatch between what I'm saying and what I'm feeling will be revealed. And other people, we're set to not just hear the words other people say, but to emotionally process what they're signaling non-verbally. So start by always taking time and pausing in any conversation where we might well expect there to be conflict or when somebody's asking us to do something or just check in. Have that be a part of any difficult or possibly conflictual conversation to take our time. Pause to slow down. When we connect with the body, we're starting that journey. The second is to practice disclosing 
in every opportunity. If somebody makes the mistake of saying, how's it going, don't say fine. I have made fine and all right illegal for me. If I could give myself a fine for saying it, I would. I don't say okay, I don't say fine, I don't say good. I try to, as a habit, I try to express the full range of emotions. Ask me how I'm doing. How are you? Okay, so I was a little pissed off that it was really cold on my bike ride over because I was, I was really uncomfortable and I wanted it to be warm because I liked riding my bike and it was really cold and I, I felt kind of a little sad. But I really like coming here and doing this class, so I started to feel an uplift as I rode over the bridge. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, you, 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 I don't want to put you on the spot, but, Colleen. But um, now you might say, okay, that's great with friends, or even I could see doing that with somebody that I know, but somebody at work. For me, I very often will not disclose facts that I'm uncomfortable with, but I try to express the emotion that's been most uh, recent. That does the bulk of the work in developing and cultivating authenticity. A, a, a woman, when I was giving this talk a few days ago, said, well, what have you just gotten out of a mental institution? And I said, well, you don't have to say that, but you could say I've been depressed or sad lately. Nobody will reject you for acknowledging you've been going through a tough time. You don't have to say the details. We're not, when we talk about authenticity, authenticity does not involve a biological disclosure or, or autobiographical, I meant to say, biological would be another. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we don't want to do either necessarily. Really, the only time in my life when I, when I am fully inauthentic is with New York City policemen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I grew up a punk. Look, I'm not a person of color. I can't even imagine what people of color have been through. I mean, but I grew up a punk with a Mohawk in the 1980s, and I've seen so much stuff that whenever a cop comes to me, I go... I'm sorry. <laughs> you dropped this. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I won't ever do it again. You dropped your hat. Ah! <laughs> really, I've become a fawning, obsequious mess. I will do anything not to get them to do what I've seen them do. So, uh, But other than that, I try to be as authentic. And I found, I worked in, you know, really sort of stressful offices before I became a full-time Buddhist teacher, that you can really actually disclose far more than what we think we can disclose. I'm, I'm not going to say that, you know, there are certain situations maybe that might come up rarely, a job interview with somebody you don't know, and maybe in those situations where we absolutely feel that we cannot represent the truth of, of the most dominant emotions we've been experiencing of late, at least I don't abandon myself and say something that I'm not feeling. <laughs>
I will not say I'm okay. Sometimes when I'm dealing with somebody that I really don't feel safe with or that I have to, I feel this sort of imperative to present, I'll just go, eh, it is what it is. That's what my dad taught me. Later on when he got sober, he would answer everything with, eh, it is what it is. It's one of the things I learned from my dad that's actually very useful because it's, it's not saying good when I'm actually feeling, you know, kind of frustrated. It's really useful to start stating needs clearly and to uh, and, and expectations. When we harbor expectations or needs without sta- stating, when we get into relationships or friendships or work environments where we don't state what we need and we feel that other people should know, all that leads to is a belief a sense of doubt in the necessity of clearly communicating what's important to us. And it starts us again on the journey of presenting. So you may feel in a relationship or with a roommate or with a friend that they should know how quickly to call you back. But in my experience, if we want to move into authenticity, we have to practice not just expressing feelings, but expressing needs clearly without embarrassment. Uh, Establishing boundaries, knowing what makes us uncomfortable and not agreeing to do it. Of course, if we follow idea number one, pausing, checking into the body, pausing really helps in establishing boundaries. The only times in my life where I find myself uh, transgressing and doing things that I don't really like to do, is when I agree too quickly, when I don't say I'll get back to you later, or when I don't say no but follow it up with an alternative. For example, no, I really don't want to go to a dive bar at midnight to hang out. However, if you'd like to have dinner one night, that would be great. Always offering an alternative rather than saying no to a friend allows us to establish Uh, boundaries, and yet also be okay with presenting our needs. When we find ourselves wounded in interactions, it's really great to reconnect and do the work. It's never too late to acknowledge, hey, you know, the other day when I saw you and I was a little bit weird and quiet and I didn't And uh, really what was going on is I was really upset by something in work, but I didn't really want to talk about it. I like to acknowledge, because you're important to me, that I would like to be able to express those things. It's never too late to repair and to acknowledge that which we haven't expressed. Also, I should note that if we're wounded by an interaction or an abandonment, rather than calling up the person and trying to repair, it's worthwhile taking some time and rebalancing awareness away from fixating on the disconnections in our life. The Buddha had a list of ten recollections, two of which I really like. Uh, One is called Deva Nusati, which is essentially a gratitude list of people, bringing to mind all the people who've been accepting and kind and who haven't rejected and who haven't judged, and who haven't uh, been mistreating. When I focus on someone who's 
or a relationship that struggled or a friendship, there's that impulse one might feel to present inauthentically just to repair the relationship. And it's worthwhile reminding ourselves that there are people who accept our, us for who and what we experience. In fact, most people, I think, those are the deepest relationships we have. The other reflection is what the Buddha called Marana Sati, which is the reflections that we're all going to die, and is it really worth it to spend more of our lives trying to show and present what people want, rather than finally, finally just relaxing and disclosing who we really are.